Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody to Nightlight. Thanks so, so much for joining me today. This is a special, special show, and I'm so glad that um, we're able to get it going. I want to thank first um, Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please check him out on the internet. He and his wife are Native storytellers, and they have continued in the tradition that is that is ancient, more ancient than I know, actually, and of of preser- preserving their history and their cosmology with stories that they passed have passed down generation to generation to generation. Certainly better than the written word in many cases, and it's something everybody should experience. And a way of, if if nothing else, passing family history generation to generation. So please check him out on the internet. Native storyteller Ken Quiethawk. Uh, today I have um, with me James Tabor, and he is an author of an amazing book entitled Paul and Jesus, How the Apostle Transformed Christianity. And in this compulsively readable exploration of the tangled world of Christian origins, religious historian James has illuminated the earliest years of Jesus' teaching before Paul shaped them into the religion we know today. This is a fascinating examination of the earliest years of Christianity and reveals how the man we call St. Paul shaped Christianity as we know it today. Historians <clears throat> excuse me, historians know almost nothing about the two decades following the crucifixion of Jesus when his followers regrouped and began to spread his message. During this time, Paul joined the movement and began to preach to the Gentiles using the oldest Christian documents that we have, the letters of Paul, as well as other early Christian sources, James reconstructs the origins of Christianity. He shows how Paul separated himself from Peter and James to introduce his own version of Christianity, which would continue to develop independently of the message of Jesus, James, and Peter. Paul and Jesus illuminates the fascinating period of history when Christianity was born out of Judaism. 
James is a professor of Christian Origins and Ancient Judaism in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where he's taught since 1989. Previously, he held posts at Notre Dame, William and Mary, and he holds a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies and Early Christianity from the University of Chicago and is an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls and Christian Origins. And I, I do also want to mention um, his newest book, Paul's Ascent to Paradise, the apostolic message and mission of Paul in the light of his mystical experiences really should be a partner book to Jesus and Paul, Paul and Jesus, because it takes you from the 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 grassroots, the, the physicality of what happened into the mystical thing, into the mystical part that Paul went through. So you should read, you should read this book first and then go into Paul's Ascent to Paradise because it has the mystical explanation of what is going on with the same type of historical references so that, so that it, it's more of a grassroots as well, but it, it, gets you into the mystical, spiritual essence of what was going on within this man and how he handled and dealt with it. And it's, it's an amazing duality, the two books, and they, they really should be read together. And I had the good fortune of being able to do that. So I highly recommend everybody else do it. So welcome to the show, James. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Barbara. Good to be here. Yeah, I Thanks think you should put these two books. You, you, I think you should put the two books together. I, I think they should be yeah. definitely sold together. Well, we could try to pair them on Amazon, maybe, and do that. Um, they're two different publishers, but I'm really glad <laughs> you read both of them. You know, when we first talked, it was just Paul and Jesus, which I'm glad to talk about. But you really took a deep dive this week when we uh, missed each other on Wednesday, and I think you read that book in the last 24 hours, so I'm impressed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, my Ballywick is the mysticism, so it was was a very juicy book for me to read. I I understand it was your Ph.D. dissertation, but um, it was just so full of wonderful stuff. I just adored it. Um, but but let's let's talk first about Paul and Jesus because that's where we should begin. And I think before we even dive into it, I think we need to talk a little bit about the society and the culture of that time because it's it's you know people write according to their frame of reference, and of course all of the stuff that was written that has become the Bible um, was written in a very different time. So can we talk a little bit first about what life was like during that time frame so we have a better understanding of of how the message came and was preached and then was shaped into a, into a different modality almost? Right. Uh, Paul, of course, he, he inhabits uh, his larger world, would be the Hellenistic or Greco-Roman world. He grows up outside of the land of Israel and what we call today Turkey, 
you know, we know him. Some of the listeners will know Paul of Tarsus. And his real name then is not Paul, or his, his, name, his Hebrew name is Saul, Saul of Tarsus. So that's probably where we would start. We do have a tradition. It's preserved just by Jerome, who's a 4th century Christian. But I put it in the book. I think it might be valid. Is that Paul's parents were from the Galilee, a town north of where Jesus grew up, And Paul would have been born about the same year as Jesus, 5 BCE, or BC, if you prefer. And they were exiled uh, to Asia Minor, according to Jerome. And I don't think he would make that up. It's too odd a thing to say. So if you think of Paul maybe even being born in the land of Israel, in the Galilee, probably 50 miles from where Jesus grew up, They wouldn't have known each other as babies, obviously. But it's just kind of an interesting juxtaposition to think of, you know, the roots of somebody. And then they get exiled to Tarsus, which is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It's a province of Rome. And somehow his parents obtain Roman citizenship. So Paul has that dual nature from the start. Uh, he is a Roman citizen, according to the book of Acts, which is one of the records we have of his life. My books delve more into his letters, uh, which tells you more of a personal side, but the book of Acts does have some biography. Some of it contradicts. In the back of Paul and Jesus, I try to sort some of that out for you. You know, what do we think is historical and what isn't? But I think we can definitely say that he grew up outside of the land of Israel. And then in his own letters, he says that he was sent to Jerusalem to study under the most famous rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. Gamaliel II is his name. He's mentioned in the New Testament. And if that's the case, Paul, Paul puts it pretty unmodestly. He says, I excelled among all those of my generation in my study of Judaism. So we'll take him at his word. He does seem to be very intelligent. His writings in Greek, in the Greek New Testament, reflect a a high literary character and a lot of logic and things that people have tried to figure out. So he's, even though he grows up under Roman rule outside of Israel, he goes back to Judea, and spends time in Jerusalem. So from the start, he's got that dual background. Uh, Greco-Roman culture he would have been exposed to. That would be all the temples, all the traditions of a Greco-Roman city like Tarsus, including the mystery religions, and we'll have to get into Uh that. And then he goes and becomes what we would call today a very orthodox rabbi and a teacher. And uh, he, he, even though he was of the generation of Jesus, according to any knowledge that we have, he never met Jesus. And I actually begin the book with that sentence, Paul never met Jesus. A lot of people know that, but believe it or not, since that book was published, I've had a lot of people say when I give lectures or talks or interviews, really? I didn't know he never knew <laughs> Jesus. Of course, I mean in the lifetime of Jesus in the flesh, because later he claims he did know Jesus more than anyone else, and that's when we get into his mysticism. Uh, 
But as far as his background, you would just have you you would think in terms of the entire Greco-Roman civilization. He's fluent in Greek. He's probably aware of Latin, you know, just because he's growing up as a Roman citizen. He understands the culture of his day, the Hellenistic cultures. And he seems somewhat familiar with Stoicism, particularly, uh, we think. But also that he has that deep, deep uh, rabbinic connection that we would know more from books like the Mishnah. You know, the Mishnah is this collection of Jewish wisdom and teachings from the third century. So it's later than Paul, but it's our first record of what the rabbis are really sitting around talking about in the first century. And rabbis like Hillel and Gamaliel are the big names. And so Paul was exposed to that as well. So really, and then when he comes into his view of Jesus, that would be almost like a third world for him. So he's, in some ways, he's more complex. You know, you think of Augustine, the great Christian theologian. He had his pagan so-called, mani- I'm using that word advisedly here, his non-Jewish, <laughs> yeah. uh, non-Christian, Greco-Roman background. Uh, you know, pagan actually just means somebody from the country. So it doesn't really uh-huh. make much sense today to use that term. But uh, anyway, he, Augustine had that background, and then he, he had his Manichaean background, and then he became a Christian. So Paul's kind of complex like that. You know, you have to always remember. He knows Platonism. I'll quote you something from Paul just to get us started. And you tell me if this is Paul or Plato. Okay? You ready? Okay. For we look to the things that are unseen, not to the things that are seen. For the things that are unseen are eternal, and the things that are seen are temporal. Now, that is just a beautiful quote that could come right out of Socrates or Plato, and yet it's in Second Corinthians. And Paul is actually reflecting this kind of dualism that says there is this other reality the things that are unseen by the senses that are actually more real than the things that are seen. And yet he still has both feet on the ground. He's Jewish, and Judaism is known for its earthiness, not earthliness, but just the sense of the earth the place to be, and the Torah is for life, right? It's for living our, in this world. So yeah. he has that. But he also has this flight. I mean, after all, you read the book. Paul's ascent to paradise, he's the only autobiographical, well, let me put it this way. Paul's account of his ascent to the highest heaven, paradise, we call it seventh heaven, is the only autobiographical account we have from the ancient world. We have literary accounts. You read them all in the book. I surveyed all the accounts of people that say that, but it's other people saying that somebody else did it. With Paul, he says, I, I. Okay, so you've opened the door here, so I have a question. Um, He talks about going to heaven, and he talks about going to paradise, and he talks about the third heaven, and, um, you know, you're you're now in my metaphysical field, and... um, so so I'm I'm just wondering he's very explicit about 
what he saw and how he saw it. But you threw you threw a quote at me. I'll throw you one at, at I'll throw one to you because this quote, if I if I really did calligraphy, calligraphy or or needlepoint, I would do I, I'd have it on my wall to journey within to see and experience one's true self, the divine nature within, is to move from the earthly and mortal to the immortal and immortality, and as such, anticipate the final release and ascent into death. Um, To me, I mean, I, I don't know where would a mystic fit into all of his other titles because he feels like a mystic to me. Yes, well, he's he's you know he's a we're going to throw a lot of other things in. He's apocalyptic, so he thinks yes. the end of the age is near. So not only does he have this um, vertical dimension of going up in and out of this material world. By going Uh within, by the way. As you know, when he tells his account, he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. So he's not actually claiming that his body levitated or anything like that. And it could just as well have been an inner journey to the ultimate kind of reality. And he's also got that horizontal plane because he thinks the entire cosmos is on the verge of being transformed. He even calls it a birth, like the cosmos is pregnant. And his message, he thinks, is bringing about the birth of this new cosmos. Now, when yeah, he does he keeps, talk about, yeah, go ahead. He keeps saying he keeps saying it's close, but not yet. And I love that. I mean, it's kind yeah, of yeah. There's like a chapter coming, but... I have called "Already Not Yet." And it's like, uh, you know, when we say yes, no, no, yes, no. Uh, So he's willing to give people advice as if it's not yet, meaning don't start a new business. You don't have time. He says that first thing seven. He even says don't get married. And it is not Catholic celibacy. It's not that at all. He tells couples in the same chapter to have sex regularly and not deprive one another, men and women. He gives kind of privileges to both. So he's not talking about, you know, this kind of uh, asceticism, that kind of celibacy. It's I call it circumstantial celibacy, meaning we're going to go through this horrible time in world history. Don't plan your wedding right now. It's not a good idea. Don't plan a pregnancy. Don't plan a – because he says business too. And he says the whole form of the world is passing away. But on the other hand, as you said, he says he goes up into these other dimensions now. So it's already, but not yet. Well, what's the not yet? I mean, what's the already? The Hellenistic cosmos has seven heavens. They paralleled them, of course, with the seven planets. And when he says the third heaven, that's the lowest realm before you you know, like we would even say, escape the gravitational pull and go out into space. If you were making like an astronomical kind of example, knows you're off, you're off. You're, you're, when you go, he says, I got caught to the third heaven. Lots of mystics visit the third heaven and then they don't go any further. Like Enoch, you know, the famous book yeah. of Enoch. 
he goes to the third heaven. But when you go on into paradise, pardes uh, is the old Hebrew word, you're then entering into the very presence of God would be the simple way, the force of all forces, the ground of our being, the ultimate reality. And there he says, I heard things unutterable that I'm not able to tell you. And we don't know if that means I was forbidden to tell you, because the word can mean either, or there's no way I could express it. But he had to be unbelievably changed by that experience. And it it made him completely convicted that no matter what anybody had ever experienced with what he calls the earthly Jesus, Jesus after the flesh, like Peter and Paul, Peter and the disciples, Peter and James and John and all of them, and the brothers, that that was a stage of physical life, but that they had not received what he had received. So he would say, I'm last, I'm last, but I'm not least. And then he would say... Things like the abundance of my revelations were so beyond. He he, he uses this Greek word. It would mean something like super, abundantly super. You know, it's it's got two three superlatives to it <laughs> with the word revelation. So so he's really claiming to have been the one who has experienced. Uh, I guess we would say today some form of ultimate transcendent reality, personally, that he experienced that. Well, I could see where, where you know, the, the apostles all knew the physical Jesus, but he knew the glorified Jesus. And that's a different, different, uh, different element, different, di- different level of energy, of knowledge, of wisdom, of insight, of inspiration. Um, the apostles knew Jesus physically. They saw him work miracles. They listened to his 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 um, gospels. They they, li- they listened to him talking to people about about how to live their life in the physical, the here and the now. When you come to Paul, Paul is more concerned about how you're going to be in the hereafter. And and that's that's you know one is one is the body and one is the spirit and not I'm not saying that Jesus didn't talk about your spirit but because of course he did but but the main audience the main focus the main thrust of all of Jesus's messages were about the here and the now and how to live your life now and Paul takes on a whole other level of it introducing your spirit into it and and how your spirit is has got to evolve and what your spirit needs not necessarily your body and right and for would, um historically it, it becomes a question uh when you look back on christianity i think i told you when we talked one day before uh when we were just beginning to get to know each other people either love or hate this book my job in the book was not, I don't take a position like, oh, I believe Paul and he's the one and I follow him or that I don't. I don't, that's not what I do. <laughs> yeah. I'm a historian. But 
those who like, it's not a Paul bashing book and it's not a Paul bolstering book. Meaning if you think Paul's revelation was valid and should be put above James, the brother of Jesus and Peter and, and the 12 apostles, then did I get Paul right? That would be the question. And you would like the book because you would think, well, wow, this is the latest word from the risen Christ. But in the early church, there was a movement, the Ebionites. They were the original Jewish followers of Jesus. They rejected Paul, and they said, no, we're just fine. God sent his son. He was born of a woman. He taught and lived and died, was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven. And that body of more Jewish apocalyptic teachings is the valid tradition. And we associate that with, say, the book of James, whether scholars differ as to whether James actually wrote that. But if you read the book of James, it's a short five chapters in the New Testament. A lot of people haven't read it. Luther hated it because Luther was a Paul guy. And uh-huh. he put it in the back of his New Testament. I don't know if your listeners know that. So the original Luther Bible had James in it. But he wrote, he put it in the back in smaller print and said sort of like reader beware because, oh because you read James, it'll remind you of the Sermon on the Mount, exactly what you were saying. It's like, uh, how do you pray? And don't swear. Just if you say yes, it's yes. If you say no, it's no. It's how to live your life. We always call that the Sermon on the Mount. You read James, it, it sounds exactly like he's listening to his brother teach in the Galilee. You know, he quotes the same kind of thing. He has nothing about the crucifixion, nothing about the cross, nothing about the blood of Jesus, nothing about salvation by believing in Christ. And then you go to Paul, and it's a whole construct that you're not even a Christian unless you affirm the gospel that Paul preached. So on the one hand, you have Paul's cosmic Christ. On the other hand, you have the historical Jesus as he was. And how those two meet or intersect is the question of the book. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, you know, I feel I feel for Paul. I really do. Um, to, have, to have experienced a glorified Christ and, and spent time with him and, and, and gotten wisdom, messages, insight, whatever from him. And then to have to turn around to a society and say, no, no, this is what he meant, or this is what you have to do. And it, it's, it's kind of like beating your head against a brick wall. And, and I see, um, you know, in some of his letters, he is, he is lecturing and he is saying, imitate me, be as me. You know, as as I have, you know, structured my life, um, and and it, in a way, it sounds arrogant. In another way, it sounds frustrating, because he wants so much for people to understand what he's seen and where he's been, and he just doesn't feel like he's getting through to a lot of them. Yeah, and and his opponents, I think, would question and did question. Uh, the Ebionites, they're called. We have the barely get these records. They almost were destroyed by the church, but they're called the pseudo-Clementine writings. They're on the web. People can look them up, pseudo-Clementine writings. 
and they reflect a side of Christianity that stayed more with historical Jesus and rejected Paul. And they would say to you, Barbara, well, wait a minute. Maybe you're following a deluded person. And just because somebody says they talk to Jesus and they've got the latest word from heaven, don't be so sure you should run after them because people make all kinds of claims of revelation. And they were more adhering to the tradition that they'd received from the physical Jesus. And so Paul, he has to address that. In one of his letters, Second Corinthians, he uses the term Jesus after the flesh. And he says, uh-huh. we don't know Jesus after the flesh. And it doesn't mean anything. You know, we use flesh now to mean, you know, like a flesh pot or something. It just means the human Jesus. Because we don't know yeah. him that way anymore. Even if, he says, even if we knew him that way once, talking to people like Peter and James and anybody that might have known Jesus. But he says now this, we know him in the spirit. And that's, he, Paul claims to be a 13th apostle with the latest word from heaven. And if he is that, if he, those who accept Paul and most Christians do, Paul, they re, you'll find that they go to Paul more than Jesus in many cases because nothing Jesus said establishes Christianity, really. It's just good ethical Judaism, you know? Yeah. Of, of, and it, it's actually prophetic Judaism. It might go against some of the traditions of certain sects of Judaism, but I think every single thing Jesus taught, authentic Jesus, remember our Gospels have to be read critically. They're not, they've been influenced by Paul too. But when we oh, yeah. get to historical Jesus, we find him talking very, very much like Isaiah, very much like Jeremiah. He sounds like Amos. He sounds like Hosea. And if you take uh-huh. those four prophets you've got almost everything that Jesus taught uh, just, and he's amplifying that. So he could be seen as more of a reformer, an apocalyptic uh, proclaimer of the kingdom of God. I love the way he defines the kingdom of God. That is Jesus. He says, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he doesn't fly off to heaven. He says, the will of God needs to be realized on earth, and that's very Jewish. Um, you know the poem of Robert Frost, I'm sure, Birches. And I love yes. the line where he says, the earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better, in that typical <laughs> Robert Frost humor. And uh, that would fit very much this idea of, Let's bring the kingdom of God to the material world because that's the original meaning of creation, not just like the Greeks fly away to heaven and abandon the earth as a dark and hopeless place. And so that's something that is really unique, I think, to the proclamation of Jesus. You, you mentioned it. it's for this world, but it's to transform this world into you know there'll be neither Jew nor Greek bond or free slaver free male female this kind of uh, egalitarian perfected world is what Jesus is trying to inspire people to live toward well and didn't he pick up the message of John the Baptist and just expand upon it as well 
I mean. He really did. And in all the movies, John the Baptist is presented as this sort of absolutely, I mean, he just looks like he's mentally ill. You know, he's screaming and yelling, (laughs) wild-haired, and he's skinny as a rail. And maybe he was all those things, but I don't think he was crazy. But if you look at our records, he and Jesus taught much the same thing. For example, if I say to you, who taught let him who has two coats give to him who has none? Everybody would say Jesus, and that's wrong. It's actually John. That's in Luke uh-huh. uh, chapter 3, and it's from John the Baptist. So he had – it's not so much that John had Jesus' message, that Jesus had John's message. John even talks to Roman soldiers. He talks to Gentiles. He talks to all classes of people. And I think he also had this egalitarian view of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is realized when, as we say, red and yellow, black and white, all sit down together, male, female, slave and free. Notice economic, gender differences, economic and social differences, ethnic differences. So Jesus includes women in an extraordinary way in his, uh, in his teaching. So, he, but he wanted. He didn't just want to say, "Let's leave the world and go to a heavenly world," but rather, let's transform this world into what it's supposed to be. That's clearly a part of what Jesus was all about. Yeah. And Paul, on the other hand, is more concerned about where you're going as opposed to yeah, where he, you are. He, I think he thinks there's no time. You know, like. <laughs> Paul tells women in 1 Corinthians 14, and a lot of people are aware of this, and some like it and some don't. He says women should be silent. If they have a question, they should ask uh, either their husband, and if they don't have a husband, um, they can, you know, just listen, and all of that sort of thing, because he's trying to not rock the boat of the the Jewish culture of his time where women sit separate from men and so forth. But if you think about it, um, he thinks it's not that Paul, and I say this in the book, it's not that he really is a woman basher because he says a lot. He says there's no no male or female in Christ, and he gives women rights, sexual rights that are not normally given in the ancient world. He says the wife has as much control over her sexuality as the husband does, which is not the traditional view. And so – He's not really, um, he's not as chauvinistic as he's appeared by the fundamentalists who take his words out of context. He thinks very soon this will all be transformed, just literally, probably within a few years. And so he doesn't want, like he even says, honor the emperor. And the emperor is Nero at the time when he writes that. And he's one of the most horrible emperors there was. But he just said, you know, don't don't rock the cultural boat right now because it's all going to get changed. He says the form of this world is passing away. The problem is it didn't happen. And then we're yeah. left with those instructions and people take them out of context and beat women over the head with those things. When Paul actually, if you read Paul carefully – um, he's not against women. Uh, he's a, he, he's trying to preserve a certain kind of a social order in Greco-Roman and Jewish society. Jesus, on the other hand, rocked a lot of boats. Because
because uh, my favorite story is there are these two sisters, Mary and Martha. I think your listeners will remember them. Um, some people think Mary's Mary Magdalene, whether she was or not. She's also called Mary of Bethany. But anyway, Jesus is teaching in the Galilee, and the, the apostles are staying with these sisters at their home, we think. think it's their home. Anyway, they're serving. And Martha, the one sister, is cooking and preparing for the men. This sounds familiar, I'm sure, to many people. The women are in the kitchen cooking. And the men are outside talking the real stuff with Jesus. He's holding a class. He's a rabbi, and they're sitting at his feet. They're in class. They're registered. And Mary goes in and sits maybe on the edge, maybe up front, but she sits, it says, at the feet of Jesus. And that phrase in in Judaism If you sit at the feet of the rabbi, you're registered. You're in the class. You're in the rabbinic academy. And Martha comes and says, would you tell her to come in here and help me? I've got all this serving to do for these men, and things aren't ready. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're troubled about a lot of things. But the thing that's really needful is what Mary's chosen. In effect, he says, let the biscuits burn, sit down and listen a little bit, you know, and not putting down Martha, but just this, I mean, for him, to, that's an extraordinary story. It's only in the Gospel of Luke, only in the Gospel of Luke, or I wouldn't even have it. I'm glad Luke preserved that story. It's kind of my favorite feminist story in the Bible. There are others, <laughs> but unfortunately not as many as we'd like. But do you realize that Harvard, well, I know you do, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, I taught at William and Mary. William and Mary started in 16, uh, let's see, I think it's 16, I forgot the year, but anyway, it's the 1600s, 80s maybe. <laughs> it's a boys' school to train men for the ministry, you know, and Harvard and Yale and Princeton, when did co-ed education come? It, it's It's literally in the 20th century, right? And here's yeah. Jesus saying, no, these women need to be in class. They need to be in the class. And there are enlightened rabbis that taught their daughters, by the way. We have lots of records of rabbis teaching their daughters. And a good rabbi would, of course, teach his daughter, not just like, I love the line of Bob Dylan, can you cook and sew and make flowers grow and understand my pain? Uh, He's being (laughs) facetious, of course. He said, that would be a good woman, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's, you know, that's kind of this traditional Betty Crocker role, I guess, for a woman. But uh, many of many women are way beyond that. And of course, it's, we we do have co-ed education now, thankfully, and have made some advances. But I love that story of Martha and Mary oh, for that reason. And you well, know, Jesus you know, is probably supported by women. Luke also. This is only in Luke chapter eight. Uh, have people looked that up? Chapter eight of Luke. It says that Jesus was supported by a large group of women. Mary Magdalene is named. These are influential women: Susanna, yeah. Joanna. One of them is Herod's, the wife of Herod's chief of staff, Herod Antipas. So she's very high up. And then it says, and many others who men, who supported him out of their treasury. So. You've got to picture this little entourage traveling around, not just 12 guys like the movies walking up down the hills of Galilee listening to the boys (laughs) talk, 
It's got to be a caravan of people with men and women and children and animals and tents at night and setting up camp. And that's why it's so disturbing. The outsiders are looking at that, including, I think, some of the Roman authorities and thinking, wait a minute. If this kind of thing catches on, we're going to lose our cultural restrictions. Yeah, women will just be running off following a teacher and, you know, not doing their job. So we're getting a little more to Jesus. But I wanted to point out that Jesus is very concerned with that aspect of this world. The rabbis call it tikkun ha'olam, which means to fix the world, to repair the world. And mystical Judaism does not leave behind this world as a dark and awful place. Remember Genesis? God Mm -hmm. declares that it was good. So this world is very important in terms of making it into what it should be, according to Jesus. And I think Paul agrees with that, but he thinks we're so near the end that it's best to just hold on tight until Christ comes, which he expects to see. He thinks he'll live to see it, which he didn't, of course. But he saw him glorified, which is even better. He did. I think that's what he saw. My guess in the book, you know, I have that chapter, I have those chapters on Paul's great ideas, six great ideas of Paul. And his greatest idea is that resurrection of the dead is not a corpse walking around, resuscitated corpse, in other words, showing its wounds and so forth, like you have in the later gospel accounts. But resurrection of the dead is like a transfiguration, like you find in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, where the dead appear bodily. They are bodily, and bodily means individually, meaning it's not a puff of smoke or a vapor. They have their own individuality. But Paul says, I can't describe to you what that is. He says, if you say to me, well, what kind of a body does Jesus have? Now, many Christians today would say, well, what do you mean? He's flesh and blood. He's walking around. Maybe he's kind of spiritual. He eats fish. He eats bread. But he's also spiritual, passing through doors. That's not Paul's view. Paul's view is a kind of blinded by the light view in which he's just overwhelmed by this experience that he's had. And I think when he goes up to the highest heaven, and sees and hears things unutterable. He says things that I can't even tell you. He probably saw a taste of that glory. Uh, That's our English word for it, of this ultimate reality. And it's not Uh something you can convey back in human terms any more than we always use the analogy of a blind man uh, telling a blind person about the vividness of colors. And you could use rough analogies, but you're not getting the colors. Or music to a person who's deaf. Uh, You know, listening to Beethoven's uh, Fourth Symphony. So, well, it's it's sort of like, you know, here, let me tap on your wrist. It's sort of like that. Well, actually, it's not like that at all, you know. So I think he's saying, I can't tell you. And that's why he's so fired up by this experience that he has that he's utterly convinced that that's the actual destiny of those who follow Jesus. But remember, 
he thinks you've got to suffer in this world in order to have that glorification. And that's the part of Paul people tend to forget, the suffering. He says, I fill up the measure of suffering lacking in the body of Christ. He feels like he's bearing also the suffering of Christ. And it has to do with opposing evil, really. Didn't he also at one point say that he had the stigmata and that the, since he came back from the, be, you know, seeing the glorification, that, that, that there was a thorn? They, that, and, and he, yes. He was, what happens? It's, it's two different passages, but one, the stigmata, it's a Greek word, stigmata. It just means wounds. It doesn't yeah. necessarily mean the marks of crucifixion like you would have your hands and your – by the way, it's not your feet. We know from archaeology. You know I do archaeology too. It, the yeah. nail was actually through the heel bone, but we can get to that when we talk about Jesus sometime in the future, what we know from archaeology about Jesus quite a bit. But anyway, he says it's in Galatians, and he's very frustrated with the people because they're not listening to him. And he says – From now on, let no man trouble me. I bear in my body the wounds of Jesus, the marks of Jesus. So it's uh, he's trying to say, you know, it's almost like I'll take off my shirt and look at the whip marks on my back and then just shut up and leave me alone. I mean, literally, it's like I've paid my dues, you know, so don't (laughs) come and chirp at me with some objection you know, well, isn't this right, or don't you know that? You know, he says, look, don't trouble me. I met Christ, and that's it. And the other one is exactly as you said. It's in the passage where he talks about ascending to heaven. And he says, because the super abundance of my super revelation, remember I said it's like a triple superlative, because of yeah. that, being so beyond anything, after the effect was that I was debilitated in some physical way. Now, people come up with all kinds of things. Maybe he was epileptic, or maybe he was nearsighted, or they they usually come up with, like, physical ailments that he might have had, like congenital diseases, but there's no evidence of that. He says it's because of this experience. So it sounds like it's some kind of... Uh, humiliation that he receives in his body. He calls it a a messenger of Satan that is allowed to attack him to keep him from being too proud of what he's experienced. He he It's it's like he's saying, you know, look, Barbara, if we could bring it, what I've experienced is beyond any human who's ever lived. And you'd be like, come on. You know, what are you even talking about? Now, why would he say that? Because he says Moses ascended Horeb or Sinai and did see part of the glory of God. Remember, it's in Exodus, I think, chapter 33. God says, you can't see my glory. It would kill you. But he said, I'll let you see my back as I pass by, and I'll cover you with my hand anthropomorphically. You'll get a glimpse of the glory. And remember, his face glows after that. Well, Paul is basically Uh saying, no, I saw the glory. And so, uh, as someone once said, the biggest problem God has in giving people any kind of big major revelation is it'll destroy them through pride. 
you know, if God came to me right now and said, James, you've been chosen as the main person on earth now to do this, that, or the other, you know, how many people would be able to take that? And so we don't know what the problem was. I've even wondered whether it was sexual temptation because he calls it a messenger of Satan, an angel of Satan. Because in Romans, he says, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not do, I do. And he says, and if I do what I would not, it's not me, but my flesh. And he's talking about lust or coveting. It's translated coveting, but it really means lust. And it could be that he is tempted with thoughts and so forth, and he doesn't want to allow himself to dwell in that area. Now, that's just my speculation, uh, because he talks about the weakness of the flesh, and over the flesh wars against the spirit, you know, to try to... But he could just be yeah, talking did. about, maybe it is a physical element of some type. Well, he, he describes it as a thorn. Back. Yeah, a thorn, yeah. So... It could be chocolate ice cream, too. I mean, it could be a lot of things. You know, the temptation to, you know, eat something you shouldn't or, or, or a love of pork Well, people can't control their dreams. And it is, we do have records of some of the great mystics who are trying to live a celibate life, which Paul is trying to do. He's trying to live a celibate life. And they can't control their dreams. And they feel horrible about it. Because they have these unbelievably erotic dreams. Go talk to Freud and find out why. You know, the it is still yeah. operative. Yeah. And he, it could be something like that. And he says, you know, this is like, a, this is just a thorn in my flesh. I want to be spiritual. I want to be holy. I don't want to be having a vivid dream about intercourse with somebody that I'm not even married to or, God forbid, you know, a relative or whatever. Dreams are crazy. It could be something like that. It could be something physical. It could be the wounds that he's received, you know, because he really got beaten up a lot. And so maybe yeah. some of the, the beatings and the stoning and the things that he suffered have given him ailments. But he does call it a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh. And he directly connects it to a function which is to keep him from being too exalted. And he actually talks to Jesus about it, like first-person conversation, like, Jesus, why am I having this? And Jesus answers him. He says three times he got the same message. You're okay, Paul. You've got enough grace. The suffering you're talking about is for your own good, for your own perfection. So, I don't know what it was, and, you know, I, I seriously doubt if it's some congenital thing or something he was born with. He sounds like it's something that happens because of his experiences. And I think other mystics testify to this. Maybe you know about this, Barbara, that well, they say just, that, that they're left kind of it, uh, wounded by by some of their experiences. It, it, it felt to me when he was saying it that that he was – it, it, it definitely, whatever it is, was to keep him humble, because yes. um, that's what he said. You know, mm-hmm. without without humility, his message falls on deaf ears. Um, but but it, it did feel to me as though it was it was more of a wounding of 
of his spirit rather than his body so that you know it yeah. uh, a hurt an internal emotional hurt as opposed to a physical um something that was that was physical that you could see it was it was a hurt that was internal that that he was punishing himself it may it may just be that that he was doing it to himself to keep him humble yeah, he does call it a thorn in the flesh, and whenever he uses flesh, he usually means body. But what it was, I don't know, and obviously those kind of things are also always psychically connected to our minds as well, you know, different uh-huh. kinds of disabilities. So, yeah, he, he But lived. anyway, he does claim to have that extraordinary experience beyond anyone else, probably, certainly of his generation, and yet he doesn't want to... He wants to, it's funny, he wants to not brag about it, but he puts himself down. He says, I'm the least. I persecuted the followers of Jesus. I'm nothing. I'm I'm unworthy, he says. I'm unworthy to even be called an apostle. But then he can't help adding, but I labored harder than them all, you know. And so he 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 wants you to know that he's last but not least in the sense that he doesn't want you to discount what he is telling you. So he's kind of, he's pretty complex. His letters are very complex. I've read them hundreds of times. He has labored uh, labored harder because he, he labored alone. And, you know, the other apostles, you know, had, had, sort of a leg up because first of all there were 12 of them and and that they seem to have gotten I think the one thing that 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 was new to me was that after he'd had his his meeting of of Jesus he went into the wilderness for 3 years before he even came back and talked to the other apostles so yeah so he that's something I bring out in the book that usually is not talked about and I think I present evidence that he goes down into the Negev down to Mount Sinai yep. and he would be like Moses and Elijah and maybe even Jesus people always put Jesus out by Jericho you know just 15 miles from Jerusalem down by the Dead Sea but if you read the account of Jesus going into the wilderness uh, He uses the word wilderness, it's Greek, but in Hebrew it's arava, and it actually can refer to that whole rift valley that runs all the way down to Africa. And so it could be, yes, he he spends this probably solitary time, maybe living in a cave, and maybe even the Sinai cave or Horeb, as it's also called, Mount Horeb, which was known as the mountain of God all the way back, way before the time of Moses. You know, when Moses goes to that mountain and takes off his shoes because it's holy ground, it's already called the mountain of God, the mountain of the Elohim, the forces of all forces. So it could be that he went there, and then he says, I was taught by Jesus Christ. So it's reminding you of the claims of Muhammad, who got... His message, he says, from the angel Gabriel, but the idea that you would go in a cave and then be taught personally one-on-one with a either an angel or, in Paul's case, uh, Jesus. He says, I was taught by Jesus. That That's how he got his message. And that's where people have to decide, 
are you going to accept that claim of Paul to have heard from the heavenly Jesus? Or is it possible that Paul is a usurper and is forming a kind of Christianity that's taking one away from the historical Jesus? And that's where the early followers were divided, the Jerusalem church and uh, the followers of Paul, I think, to some degree. Originally, it feels like um, the first 12 and Paul, I, I don't think they got along really, really well, but it, it looked as though at, at some point they were going to let, how did they put it? He, they would let, they would teach to the circumcised and Paul could speak to the uncircumcised. And, you know, That's the, right. first, the first, the first, um, parting of the ways, so to speak, you know, it was like you stay to your side of the street, I'll stay to mine, and we'll be just fine. And Yeah, and that's in, uh, by the way, that's in fifth, Jesus died in 30, uh, by my calculations, and a lot, a lot of us agree with that. I know you'll have listeners that have other dates and chronologies, but let's just go with that. It's the most acceptable date, 30. And that statement he makes about Peter and it's based on a meeting they had in Jerusalem with James and Peter and all the apostles. It's recorded in Galatians. That would be about 50. So it's 20 years after, and they do have this parting. It's a kind of a agree-to-disagree parting where the 12 and James, led by James, go one way and Paul goes the other. But if you read about it in the book of Acts, it sounds very kumbaya holding hands, singing, uh, lovey-dovey, complete harmony. And if you read it in Galatians, uh, look at Galatians, his letter, chapter 2. He says things like, I went up not because I was called up, you know, like I was told, you need to get to Jerusalem and account for yourself, but by a revelation of Jesus Christ, he says. In other words, I went up because Christ told me, not because they told me. And then he says, yeah. and I met with the so-called pillars of the church. And then he can't help adding, what they are means nothing to me. And you got to read it in context. It's not really saying that he hates them or anything. But in terms of his message, if they said, look, Paul, we're pillars of the church. We were with Jesus. And James, the leader, said, I grew up with Jesus. I know my brother. And you're wrong, Paul. Paul would say, you know. Sorry. Adios. In other words, what they are means nothing to me, meaning if they contradict me. And then he says they added nothing to me, meaning they didn't tell me I needed to change what I was teaching. And then he goes on his way to the to the wider Roman world, the non Jewish world. Even though he still preached to Jews, he would go to the synagogue and preach and then he would branch out and usually get a hearing among the God-fearers, they were called, who are like Gentiles that are already beginning to come to believe in the one God of Israel and so forth. But he was very, uh, he does in that letter also say that he, if anybody tries to convert one of his followers to Judaism, to force them to be circumcised, He makes his, uh, I guess, nastiest comment in all of his letters. He said, I wish they would cut it off. And he's talking about the obvious, the circumcision. Yeah. I wish they would slip with the knife. 
which is really, uh, <laughs> I mean, how would you characterize that kind of language? But he's upset. Well, you because, know, you know, among other things, Paul was human. And, you know, I would say that that's a very human reaction out of frustration. Um, yeah. The, one, one of the other things I found very fascinating was that uh, he made a big thing about baptizing. And it it depends on who baptized you, whether you were with him or not. You know, did Jesus baptize you? Did uh, John baptize you? Did, you know, um, it, it's sort of like being accepting Christ as, as as well no that's another let me ask this when did Jesus become Christ I mean at some point he was Jesus of Nazareth he was he was to some the Messiah but when did he become Jesus the Christ well it's complicated as all this stuff is because of the words of Christ is Christos in Greek and it's the same as the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. So Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So when did he become the Messiah in the Gospels? It would be recognized around the, you know, as he began to preach and teach. And finally he gets to the point where he asks the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, okay, who, who do you guys think I am? And, of course, it's Peter that says, I believe you're the the Christ or the Messiah. So if you mean that Christ, the Jewish expectation of the descendant of David who will rule on the throne of David, that would be during probably a few months before his death. The disciples are beginning to say, yeah, this he's definitely it. But when Paul uses the word Christ, he's referring to the glorified Christ who's been transformed from a flesh and blood body to a heavenly glorious body that has all power, immortality, and splendor that he thinks is the first of a whole family of cosmic beings that are going to be born. And he says Christ is the firstborn of this new family which he believes that followers of Christ are also going to receive when he returns this glorification. But he calls him the second Adam. Second Adam. Yeah. It, it's a really interesting idea. It's like, it's as if God made a physical mock-up or prototype like people do when they manufacture something, they make a model of it. It's not it yet. So yeah. Adam and Eve in the garden, or a, a disposable flesh and blood mock-up model of one of these immortal children of God being born into the family of, of the eternal God. And Paul believes that when Jesus came, he took on that role, flesh, as, Adam, as an Adam, Adam one. But when he's raised and glorified into this new heavenly state, he becomes what Paul calls the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, we should add, although there's no gender to it. And he believes that the cosmos itself is pregnant with these human beings that are destined 
they have the flesh and blood life that we all have, but they're destined potentially for this transformation into heavenly beings. And he thinks that it'll be above angels and all other beings in the cosmos and will be, as he says, God will be all things to all. That's probably his greatest mystical statement. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. He calls it the telos, T-E-L-O-S, like teleology. He says, when the telos comes, God will be all things to all. I think he's a universalist, by the way. I think he believes that ultimately, and he says that, that God in Christ will reconcile the entire world back to himself so that God will be all things to all. The Greek is interesting, even though it's Greek. Your listeners will understand it. It's panta, all, in pasan. All things in all things will be godified, so to speak. So he's got these unbelievably grandiose ways of talking about the meaning of the cosmos. So if you ask Paul, Paul, what's the purpose of human life? We live, we die, we suffer, we have the good, the bad, and the ugly. What's it all about? He would say it's a birthing to become part of the family of God in the same way that humans can have children in their own family, that God is bringing forth these new creatures into this cosmic uh, rebirth. And I know you can find some of that, like you read my book on Paul's Ascent to Paradise, you can find it in uh-huh. the Hermetica, the Corpus Hermetica, famous mystical right. writings from Egypt. Uh, but it's not its not tied to the figure of Jesus. And I think Paul was aware of some of those mystical Gnostic writings of his day. I think he was. But he would say, yeah, but wait, I'm not talking about abstract philosophy and speculations about the universe. I'm talking about a man who walked the earth 20 years ago and was flesh and blood and you could touch him, and he has now become the most exalted being in the universe, and you can join him if you'll follow the way he showed, which is the way of suffering for others. So he kind of takes that Christian message of take up the cross and adds that cosmic dimension to it. He's got also a designation of, of stages, and and there's yes. knowledge, designation, calling, justification, and glorification. Yes, I think are these he he would probably say let's say somebody now is uh, you know your proverbial atheist. Uh, Everything evolved by chance. There's no meaning. You know, a sort of Freudian religion is a delusion. It goes no higher than the skull of your head. You know, all our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations are just projections on a dead universe. All there is is atoms in the void, Jacques Monod, the famous physicist and philosopher. Paul would say to that person, um, it's fine for you to think that. It's not your time yet to come to an understanding of what this all means. I've been, by grace, privileged to experience this. But I don't think he would particularly worry. Uh, He wouldn't say, well, you better straighten up or you're going to hell. He would think that you have to come to terms with all your failures and sins. He calls that repentance. 
And he uh-huh. feel, you know, he went away three years into the desert. And I think it was a time of repentance and reformation. And it took him three years where every thought and aspect of his life he examined. But I don't, th- I think you're right. He thinks that certain people now are, are called to, he, he uses the word called, their, their minds become open to a certain understanding of these things. And they are destined to be the kind of pioneers. And uh, Jesus is called, you know, the pioneer of this process, the first one uh-huh. to uh, experience it. But he doesn't think everybody else is left behind. It's not this heaven-hell thing. You know, you die, and then you go to the pearly gates and get judged. He doesn't think that at all. But he does think that you will have to face the judgment of the cosmic Christ, which he certainly doesn't think will be easy because he says it will reveal the thoughts and intents of the heart. And he's very adamant that you know nothing at this point about who is up and who is down. You know, how we judge people. Oh, so-and-so is very spiritual. Oh, this person, (laughs) you know, they don't have any standing before spirituality. And Paul would say, well, don't be too sure because the things that are least might end up being the greatest. And the things that people think are so important and great might end up being least. And that's also what Jesus taught. You know, but he says that very, he says, judge nothing before the time. That is, don't look at people and say, oh, this one is really high and this one is really low. Because he says, uh, you don't know the thoughts and intents of the heart. So somebody could be having a struggle and they don't end up doing very well. They're impatient, they're irritable, they're just a nasty person to be around. And you think, boy, no spirituality there. But how do you know what they're struggling with? How do you know what they're really thinking? So Paul says that. I mean, I'm not becoming preachy here with you. I'm trying to quote what Paul says. You know, he does say that. And he says, don't dare judge. Because the Corinthians, this is the first Corinthians, if you want to read it, chapter 4. He says, judge nothing before the time. You have no idea what another person's life really is internally and what they're dealing with and how they became what they became and all that went into making them. So he had, he's as far as the ancient world, he has one of the broadest views of anyone I've encountered in terms of a, a cosmic process that would eventually reconcile everybody. And I don't think it, in, to him, in, in no way would that encourage evil doing or disregard for the good. Because everything has to be accounted for, everything. Karma is the universal law of the cosmos. But uh, it's going to come in these stages, as you mentioned. There are these stages that are going to unfold. And he thinks we're only in stage one, which is pretty <laughs> elementary. So. Well, as, you know, but, but we have time, you know, but, it, you know, it, it's coming, but not yet. And um, I love that term. That you know, the bumper sticker. Already not bumper yet. Yeah, it explains a lot of Paul's yeah. ethics. And uh, also, it, it, I think the ethics does. of Jesus. I now, one of the did... problems with those. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you go ahead. 
one of the problems with the ethics, let's take the most common one. If anyone, this is Jesus and Paul, because he says the same thing in Romans 13, love your enemies, do good to those, and so forth. But Jesus said, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other, and so forth. Love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you and despitefully use you, and so forth. Now, practically, if you're living toward the end, you could call these interim ethics. Like the whole world's going to get transformed. So stay celibate, don't go into business, don't make drastic changes to the culture, honor the emperor, don't rock the boat, it's all going to be transformed very soon. And then it isn't, and we're left with these radical ethics. So Schweitzer dealt with that, Albert Schweitzer, the great Albert Schweitzer. My, my, uh, I didn't know him, of course, but my mentor in what I do, I dedicated my books to him. Uh, he said that even though the end didn't come, this is the already not yet, you live with this end-time radical ethic as if it's coming even tomorrow. And so you do try to transform your enemies by love. And those who would say, oh, come on, if somebody broke into your house and was going to torture your family and kill you, are you going to say you wouldn't resist or we shouldn't have resisted Hitler or anything like that? And I think Schweitzer and Paul and Jesus would all say, look, anyone can think of an extreme on any ethic. You know, somebody says, well, I want to tell the truth. Well, would you turn in Anne Frank, you know, and you're, yeah. you want to tell the truth? You're going to tell the Nazis? So that's not what the issue is. Of course there are extremes and people have to make decide, decisions about being a pacifist and so forth. But the idea would be that you transform the world by these eschatological ethics, meaning they're the end-time ethics, even though the end-time is not coming in the next year or two. But you live as if it's already here. So, yes, women are equal with men, even though they're not in the culture, and someday they will be in the kingdom of God, but you live as if they are now. So there is this tearing down of Roman authority and power, even hidden within these interim ethics, even if the end didn't come. So, yes, it's already, not yet. You know, <laughs> word of caution, not yet, already. Not, not yet. yet, but not soon, soon, but not yet. Yeah, I love That's that. Right. I just, it, it, you know, it it was kind of like, it, it felt like a catchphrase that he threw in every now and then just to make sure that, you know, it's soon, soon, very soon. Um, and he did think it was he, soon. I think he did think that. He expected, I mean, I'm going to take him literally. He said that Christ will appear in the clouds of heaven and raise the dead and transform the living into these immortal spirit beings with these glorious bodies. I mean, I think he thought he would live to see that. Uh, we, You know, he has 13 letters in the New Testament, and we think seven of them are unedited. They're like his authentic original letters and the other six do have interpolations but that doesn't mean they're worthless books like timothy titus uh ephesians uh colossians some of the later letters but in those letters he does seem to come to terms with his own death and i think when he's in rome in the 60s waiting to appear before nero and he does appear 
according to tradition, before Nero, and he is beheaded in Rome. I visited his tomb. I opened the book with that story of going to Paul's tomb in yeah. in Rome, south on the Appian Way. I think he realized, uh, like a lot of visionaries do, you know, this whole tired world, as D- I'll quote Dylan again, this funny old world <laughs> is going to keep moving along. Remember the Woody Guthrie story. It's yeah. tired and it's uh, lonely and it's suffering, and yet it's going to lumber along. I think he realized that, but he still did not go back on the idea, live as if it's the transformation is already here. Go ahead and live that way. And if you do that, then you're bringing a bit of that kingdom even to this world right now. And so his ethics are radical for that reason. Um, He does turn the other cheek. He does bless his enemies. He does, and you know it's it's fascinating to me that that first of all, after even after his death, there were there there were I don't know how many did you say eighteen or thirty eight different um, versions of Christianity that that finally. Well, I don't know if I can they, count as many as what happens. You know, sex. I wouldn't say 30. I don't know who said 38. I don't think that was me. But we we can trace a number of uh, wings of the movement, you know, from a very Jewish side that would even reject Paul to a very Gnostic side that would probably take Paul too far in a heavenly direction. So what you have is a spectrum of the very earthly you know, kingdom of God on earth, Jesus is going to come back, go to Jerusalem today, sit on a throne on the Mount of Olives or whatever and rule the world, to the very Gnostic, which begins to say, let's just leave this world. But I'll tell you what, remember I opened the book with the, I, I tell you that uh, I've been struggling for 30 years with a blank space in the Apostles' Creed. And if you remember, in the Apostles' Creed, we do read about how Jesus was born of a virgin, and then the next word is crucified, buried, and raised, and ascended to heaven. And think about that. This is the creed that is recited in many, many churches every Sunday. It's the oldest Christian creed. And what is missing between born of a virgin crucified, buried, and raised. And what's missing is Paul, is Jesus' whole life as a human being. And Paul is the one that begins to emphasize what Bultmann called the thatness of the gospel. And that is, I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was crucified, that he was raised from the dead for our sins and so forth. So this kind of creedal form of Christianity where you confess the dogmas of the church, I think, took over. And then you begin to judge people until maybe Augustine and maybe St. Francis. You begin to judge people by can they recite the creed and check off all the orthodox boxes. And that's still true today. Lots of fundamentalist Christians would say, well, let me ask you about what you believe. And they won't say, do you care for the poor? Did you visit the sick lately? 
When did you go to a prison? These are the things Jesus said would determine judgment. They'll say, like, uh-huh. do you believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he died for your sins, that he was raised from the dead, that he's coming again, that the Bible's inspired with no mistakes? And if you say yes to all that, then you are a Christian and you, of course, will go to heaven when you die. And so whether I don't think Paul is particularly into that formulation, but Paul's writings are used to push that version of the faith, which I would call creedal Christianity. Can you check off the boxes, you see? And there's plenty of that going on in our country today and in our world today with very orthodox conservative Christians that identify following Jesus as not so much how you live as what you recite in terms of your creed. Credo means I believe, right? These are what you need Uh to believe. And there are also a lot of independent Christians that say, you know what, like my mother, I remember talking to her once about the Trinity. She says, well, I don't believe that. I said, Mother, your church teaches it. She says, I don't care. I don't believe it. <laughs> and I said, well, okay. I guess you can believe what you want, Mom. And she had my book, The Jesus Dynasty. Boy, did that rock her world. And she said, well, I think I agreed with most of it. I said, Mom, are you kidding me? <laughs> you can't go to your church and believe that says, well, I don't have to tell them what I think. And thank God we have our freedom of our minds, don't we, to uh, think oh, what God. we want. Well, it's just, to me, And our it's freedom just, of practice, too. Go oh, ahead. absolutely. It's it just, um, he he has changed. Well, he's, he, I guess he he was the co-creator of, of the foundation of, the Christian Christianity. I mean, he was there at the break, and yet he was an Orthodox Jew, and yet he created or helped to create Christianity. He did, and it just again, it's the words Christianity. How do you define it? What does it mean? If you go back to the historical meaning, it would mean messianism, believing that God has sent His Messiah to redeem. Israel and to uh, perfect the world, that would be Christianity. But Judaism believes in that kind of Christianity, meaning Messianism. Um, Maimonides said, I believe in perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah. You say, oh, Maimonides is a Christian. No, he's not a Christian. He's a believer in the Messianic hope of Israel. So that's one thing. But Christianity as we know it, the Christianity of the Apostles' Creed, that is Paul more than Jesus. In my view, I try to argue that in the book. I'll give you a good example. Jesus is asked once about how you're forgiven. You know, what do you do? And he says, well, let me tell you a story. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a sinner, a tax collector, and he wouldn't even lift his head to heaven. By the way, this is Luke again. Luke has all these good stories. He just beat his, he beat his breast and lowered his head, and he said, God, I'm unworthy to even address you. Be merciful to me. And the other one, he said, bragged to God about his holiness, and he could check off all the boxes. I believe this. I believe that. I do this. I give. I do this. And Jesus said, I tell you, 
the sinner went up justified rather than the other. So here's the teaching of Jesus that it's the humility of the inner person that God really looks to, the not the external confession of this or that or, you know, what people say they believe and what does that even mean. Exactly. So there are people that would say if you don't believe the virgin birth, literally, that Jesus had uh, no biological father, if you believe Jesus had a biological father, you're going to burn in hell forever and ever and ever. I get letters from people all the time that tell me where I'm headed, believe me, especially emails because they're easy to send. And one of them said, and I'll do all I can to hasten that day, which I gave to the FBI as a death threat, because he wants me to go to hell, and he says he's going to do everything to hasten that day. And I mean, there's some nasty people out there, there are. and yet claiming to follow Christ, even with something like that. Um, so it's scary. <laughs> but uh, so I think I would say Paul's the founder of Christianity because I don't think Jesus ever Jesus preached a form of prophetic Judaism that would be radical for his day and was radical, but it's pretty close to Hillel. If you know Hillel, the great rabbi of the time, he's just before Jesus, and he's the one that teaches the golden rule and. All, many of the other ethics, we don't have as much from him as we have from Jesus, but that God looks at the heart. My favorite story of Hillel, there was a really strict rabbi called Shammai, and he was like, you want to be a Jew, then you got to study for years and be in the academy and the yeshiva, and maybe you'll be worthy someday. And the same guy goes to Hillel and says, teach me the Torah. He says, I don't have a lot of time. I'm only standing... Can you teach it to me while I'm standing on one foot? Now, Shammai had, beat, had beaten the guy when he asked that. He says, you're not, don't even come to me. I'm a great teacher. It would take me years to impart my knowledge to you. You're a fool. Get out of here. And he beat him away from the door. And he, the guy goes to Hillel, who's more the, quote, liberal. I don't like that term, but, you know, a free thinker. And Hillel says, oh, I can do that. Love God with all your heart. And do unto others as you would have them, or he actually puts it as negative, which is more comprehensive. Whatever you would have men, whatever whatever you hate done to you, don't do to others. In other words, do no harm, the Buddhist ethic, is the way he phrases it. And he says, that's the Torah and the prophets. The rest is commentary. And Jesus says exactly that same thing. Exactly that same thing. He actually quotes, you know, love God, love your neighbor. And if you get that, he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He tells somebody that. It's yeah. one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. A guy goes, oh, yeah, that would be more than sacrifices, temples, religion. He goes, you're not far from the kingdom because the guy <laughs> had the insight, you see. So I think Jesus stayed a Jew. He went to the temple to pray. He kept Passover. He kept Shavuot, which is Pentecost. He kept Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't think he ate pork. I think he ate, he wore feet, feet, you know, the strings on the garment because they're mentioned in the Gospels. He's an observant Jew, and he lives and dies as a Jew. So he didn't start a new religion, but he did teach and preach a way that he felt was the original uh, meaning 
of the Torah and the prophets. He always said, go learn what this means. That's my favorite phrase from Jesus. Go learn what this means. And then he'll quote Hosea, God speaking. I desire loving kindness, not sacrifice. You know, you can bring your animals and whack them in the head all you want, but that's not what I really want. I want, yeah. you know, loving kindness. So that's the Jesus that I get when I read the Gospels, more of a, I wouldn't call it Reformed Judaism. It's not like that as much as a kind of prophetic Judaism. Again, Amos, Hosea, let justice roll down like the waters. A Martin Luther King kind of message. Martin Luther King was very close to that kind of prophetic Judaism, even though he was Christian, yeah. not Jewish. <clears throat> what about what about communion, you know, the, the Last Supper? Um it it doesn't is that an invention of someone or is that some something that they all really believe happened because it doesn't make sense that Jesus would you know take wine and say this is my blood you know it it's, it doesn't feel like it goes along with what he would have believed yeah the only example we know of drinking the blood of a god is from Egyptian mystery religions i I give yeah. you the reference in my book, and this idea of eating and drinking the body and blood of a god to kind of uh anthropomorphize the power of the god in yourself or something like that it's you know I'm probably going to get a lot of people upset with me, but I'll tell you what I say in the book uh, I think that interpretation of the Eucharist. Eucharist means the Thanksgiving meal. See, the Eucharist is known in Judaism. It's not called the Eucharist. Yeah. It's called the blessing of bread and wine. Every Friday night, Jews gather, and they have the bread and the wine, and they welcome the Shabbat, the Sabbath, with blessings over bread and wine. All the way back to Abraham in Genesis 14, you even have the prayers, blessed are you, God most high, maker of the universe who gives us bread from the earth and gives us fruit of the vine. So it's a kind of a prayer of blessing for the messianic kingdom. We also find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's never associated with the body and blood of a sacrifice or even of a human being. But it is in Paul, 1 Corinthians. Uh, uh, if you go to 1 Corinthians, you can find it in several places, chapter 5, and it runs on to chapter 11. And Paul claims that he got that from Jesus, and he passes it on to his followers. And then it gets into the Gospels. But whether the historical Jesus actually said that, or whether the Gospels written later after Paul are reflecting Paul, I would question for this reason. We have an alternative version of the Eucharist in another Christian document that was lost and then found in around 1870, as I recall, might have been 1880, right in that period, at Mount Athos in uh, Greece. It's called the Didache, and it is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It has about 16 chapters, and it's a summary of the teaching of the Apostles. And it doesn't sound like Paul at all. It doesn't have Paul's theology. It sounds like the Sermon on the Mount with some other other things that are not in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, 
One of my favorite is, uh, and I'll get to the Eucharist, but one of my favorite is when you give alms, Jesus says in the Gospels, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, which I've always loved. That's just such a cool statement. You know, you keep it so separate that even one hand doesn't know. And he said in the Didache, we have other sayings he's quoted. He says, uh, when you give alms, when you give, you know, charity, let your gift sweat in your hand until you know to whom you give it. I love that. And that, of course, is to God. Like, you know, don't do it to be seen of men and so forth. So anyway, the Didache has all of that. You've got to get it. It's online. Uh, You can go just Google. It's D-I-D-A-C-H-E. It's a Greek word which means teaching, Didache. And you get, if you go through that and you go to the chapter on the Eucharist, it has blessing over the, and it's Christian, has blessing over the bread, blessing over the wine, and guess what? It does not interpret it as the body and blood, and yet it's a Christian document. It interprets it as the messianic feast that reminds us of eating and bread and drinking wine in the kingdom of God when we're all together. So it's kind of this communal, proleptic anticipation of the perfected world to come. And we think of, you know how Jesus says, you'll see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sitting down at table in the kingdom of God, and you'll be cast out. He's talking to the arrogant ones that think they're all, you know, perfect and religious. And he says the outcasts are going to be there with them. So he's picturing this, it's called the Messianic Banquet, when everybody of all ages experiences what we would have in a communal meal, eating bread, drinking wine, fellowshipping together in peace and harmony. And they would do this in anticipation of that. And that actually fits in the Gospel of Luke. If you look at Luke, Luke preserves more where the cup is not interpreted in the second blessing as the blood. Like he's got a little surviving remnant of that original service. So I would, my view is that Jesus never said the words of the Eucharist as they're later understood by Paul and by Christians. And I know that's terrible for many Christians to hear. But... You know, read the book, and I have a section on it, and see if you find it convincing. I just don't think a Jew would talk about drinking blood, even symbolically. I just don't think it happened. I think it came later. Yeah, it it, it seems to me that that it probably did as well. I know that um, the the that Paul and Peter didn't exactly agree on um, a lot of things. And you, you have a story about how, I, now I'm, I'm not sure who was complaining about who, whether it was Peter who was sitting with Gentiles and and Paul thought it wasn't a good idea or, or, or the other way around. But I do know that, that I, I think, is it Paul that said, you know, when, when I am with the Jews, I behave as a Jew, and when I'm yeah. with the Gentiles, I behave as a Gentile? Yeah, what that is, it's a story in Galatians. It's in uh, Galatians chapter 2 that I mentioned earlier. Really important chapter to read to understand what's going on. And what happened was Peter is 
they're at Antioch, he says. It took place at Antioch, which is north of the country, up in the north. The capital is the Roman province of Syria. And there's a big church there that includes Gentiles. And Peter's pretty much eating with the Gentiles. I don't think it necessarily means he's eating pork or shrimp or anything forbidden in the Torah, because I think the Gentiles would have enough respect for the Jewish sensibilities not to bring forbidden food in, but they might bring uh, meat, for example, that they got in the marketplace that Paul mentioned that might have been offered to Zeus that morning or to Aphrodite or something like that. And scrupulous Jews would not eat that. You know, they what we call kosher today. They would want everything to be kosher. And Peter is not particularly worried about that, and he's eating with the Gentiles. But then Paul says when some people from James showed up, James is more strict. He's the brother of Jesus, and he's in charge of the movement. And apparently he would have felt like Gentiles should have one table and Jews should have another table because they have different dietary rules, so you don't mix. So Paul what Peter did, according to Paul, is once James' people showed up, he moved to the Jewish table and started acting like, oh, yeah, I'm a Jew. I just want And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> if you are a Jew, but I just saw you, quote, living like a Gentile, you know, as you picked up the sandwich and ate it, you didn't ask where it came from, right? You dipped your hand in the in the bowl right next to your Gentile friends. You didn't ask about where all this came from. And now you claim you're going to keep it. Then he says you're a hypocrite. And he basically, we don't know what Peter's reaction was. Peter might have said, you know, you're right. You're right. I shouldn't have done that. We don't know. But we do know that Peter uh, Paul says that to make the point that he has a just what you quoted, it's in it's in a different book. It's in First Corinthians nine, where he says, If I'm around Jews, I go I live as a Jew. You know, I'm not gonna walk into the banquet with some bacon or, you know, pork chops. I live like a Jew and I try to relate to the Jews and understand the Jews. And if I'm with the Gentiles, I don't offend them either. Because he says, I'm worried about what he calls the Torah of Christ, the teaching of Jesus. What is his real teaching, which is, you know, the idea that it's the inside, not the outside that really counts. What really defiles a person is what goes, comes out of the heart, not what goes into the mouth. Uh-huh. And, you know, I want to add something, Barbara, here, because there's a verse that is completely mistranslated. Everybody has heard it all their life on this subject, and it's from Mark chapter 7, where Jesus says, what goes in your mouth doesn't defile, but what comes out of your heart. And then the English translation says, thus he declared all foods clean. As if Jesus said, hey, guys, go eat pork, shrimp, whatever. It doesn't matter what the Torah says. That is not in the Greek. It's apparent, It's even in parentheses, you check your English Bibles, and it's really unfortunate because in Greek it's very clear. He's actually making a joke to those who think what they eat is so important spiritually. He says, you know, if you eat something, 
it goes into he says it goes into your stomach and then goes into the toilet. He actually uses the toilet. The King James translates that the drain goes into the drain, cleansing all food. You see what he's saying? He's saying the body takes care of physical defilement, so don't worry about it. You know, kind of the idea of spiritual contamination or something, like you touched something or it wasn't washed or something. So he's actually kind of making a joke, like, hey, every time you go to the toilet, you know, your body takes care of that. But how do you take care of the spiritual defilement that's in your heart? So if you put it in context, it's really a kind of interesting teaching. It's nothing about, like, is it okay to violate the Torah and eat the forbidden foods of Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14, which Orthodox Jews don't eat even to this day. I don't think Jesus ever ate the unclean foods. Did Paul? Mm, Probably, if nobody was around who would object. But I'm not sure. But I think think he probably did, because I don't think he thinks it matters. You know, the bot. The, the, well, yeah, I don't know he if didn't there's even, such a thing as a. Yeah, he, he, even, he even said in order to be a Christian, you, you didn't need to convert to Judaism. You know, if, if That's a right. Gentile. Yeah. You know, it, and it, even it's the rabbis, kind of like. Yeah. Go ahead. The rabbis say, we don't want to make Paul the pioneer of this. The rabbis say, this is in the, in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, all. Righteous Gentiles have a place in the world to come. So they've never said that you have to be a Jew to be saved or enter the world to come, have eternal life. They've never said that, and they don't say that to this day. People think Judaism is not a religion of conversion. You can convert to Judaism, but you don't need to convert to Judaism to have a full relationship with God. So the rabbis have this idea of the laws of Noah going all the way back to Noah because he's the father of humanity uh, from Genesis 9 on. And they do say that you shouldn't eat blood, that animals should be killed humanely and the blood drained out uh, and the blood buried respectfully, kind of like the Native American tradition. You know, you apologize to the buffalo before you take its life, and then you use it completely and respect life. No slaughterhouse for this kind of idea. And so what you have in the laws of Noah would be just common, and, and this is reflected in the book of Acts, that the Gentiles do need to follow the Torah, but not as a Jew, not 613 commandments, which is the number in the Torah, You would need to follow, don't lie, don't steal, don't swear falsely, tell the truth, or that's don't lie, don't be sexually immoral, and worship the one God. But they did add, don't be cruel to animals, and don't drink blood. Isn't that interesting? And that's in the New Testament, that you're not supposed to, to consume blood. And the idea would be that blood is life. And you bury the blood out of respect for the animal. You don't drain it down a drain and, you know, flush it away with a hose in this mass-produced, you can tell I'm a vegetarian, by the way, I'm (laughs) condemning commercial meat processing. 
But it is – it's in the book of Deuteronomy if anybody wants to look it up. I think it's chapter 17 or 18 about how you're supposed – even if you're hunting, you can take the life of an animal, but it's done with this respect for the animal's life that you did not create. Uh, so I would say that uh, in terms of the laws of no, I, you know, they're not called the laws of no in the Bible, but the idea would be that there's a basic morality that's common to all cultures of humanity. And if you add to it the notion of one God, one ultimate reality beyond all reality, which even Aristotle and Plato taught, right? The ultimate God. Yeah then uh, the real stickler would be idolatry. And that's a Jewish term. Should you worship uh, lower manifestations of deity and have statues and temples and so forth as the entire world, Egypt, Babylon, Rome, Greece had, or should there just be the worship of the one creator God without any other additions. And that would be probably the stickler more than uh, requiring Gentiles to keep all the laws of the Torah, which the rabbis don't do. So Paul, in a way, is preaching a kind of messianic form of being a righteous Gentile. Um, did you know, Do you remember the New Testament talks about centurions, Roman soldiers, that go to the synagogue, and they worship the one God. Uh, uh, Cornelius is one of them in Acts chapter 10. He's not a Jew, but he attends the synagogue. He worships the one God of Israel. If you ask him about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yeah, he'd say, yeah, I follow that faith, but he's not Jewish. So Paul is correct. Uh, Judaism does not teach that you need to convert to Judaism to be saved, and he was adamant about that. But a lot of Christians think that that's what Judaism teaches. And uh, James says in Acts 15, no, 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 the, Jew, the Gentiles do not need to become circumcised and become Jews. That is not required as long as they have faith and follow these uh, basic laws for all humanity. So uh, that's something that I think has been misunderstood historically. Well, you know, I you do kind of wonder what would Paul and James, and, and that's another thing that, that I think most people don't understand, that after the death of uh, Jesus, that James was the head of the church or, or the movement. It wasn't Peter, it was James. And, and I'm my kind students of wondering, say, James who? My students say, yeah. James who? Who are you talking about? Half my students, no. not half, a third are Catholic, probably another more than a third are evangelical Christians. Some of them know that Jesus said brothers and sisters, and some of them don't. And as you know, there's a real problem with that for some people because they don't want Mary to ever have sex at all, much less yeah. with Jesus. And secondly, that when even after she's married to Joseph, she never has sex, and they live together according to the Roman Catholic tradition, in celibacy, uh, which is very bizarre if you put it back in its Jewish context. Sorry, but it is. And the Greek Orthodox say that, no, no, 
Mary never had sex, but Joseph is a really old man, probably in his 80s, and he already had all these kids from a, a widow. He's a widower, and he brings those kids to the marriage, so they're really not, you know, they're not related to Jesus. But the New Testament indicates that they are actually brothers. Uh, Joseph, after Jesus' birth, uh, the Gospel of Matthew explicitly says that uh I think it uses the Hebrew term. He he knew he knew her not until she had brought forth her son. So he uh-huh. didn't, you know, his, the marriage was consummated after the birth of Jesus because he was not the father of Jesus, but adopted Jesus. And uh, so my students are like James who, because there's two Jameses in the 12. There's James yeah. the fisherman, and then there's James son of Alphaeus. And then there's James, the brother of Jesus. I personally think that James of Alpheus might even be James, the brother of Jesus. So maybe there's two. But either way, there, there are three with different designations. And this James, the brother of Jesus, has been completely forgotten by the church. Uh, if you go to the Vatican, as I have done several times, walk up those front steps on the right, I see the great statue of Paul. On the left, I see the great statue of Peter. And I ask, where's James? And yeah. there is no statue of James. There's no monument to James. Even though, if you want to have a pope, and I don't think pope is the appropriate term because that's the bishop of Rome, but if you want to have a leader, it's a caliphate. Caliphate is not a Muslim term. Caliphate is a term of a dynasty or heredity that passes from father to offspring. And I didn't say son because it can be a woman too, I think. So it passes through the bloodline, the sacred bloodline of King David. And so Mary carries that bloodline and she passes it on to Jesus and to James. So James is also a descendant of King David. If I'm right about Mary being the mother and my next book that's unfortunately won't be out until 2023, but it's called The Lost Mary, and it's about Mary, the mother of Jesus, where I lay all this out and even talk about who might have been the biological father of Jesus. But I think it's important to see James as, as the leader, because when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he meets Peter, he says, but he does meet with James, and it's James is the one who he call he mentions first as the pillar of the church, and yeah. he's just been forgotten. He's been very forgotten. We actually have quite a bit of information about James that I put in the book. I have a whole section on James in the book. So. Well, I think that that um, you know, there's always that that you do make it very clear that that. Peter's name meant rock. Did Jesus actually say, "Thou art Peter, and or, or, Thou art the rock, and upon you I will build my church"? That doesn't make sense to me. But I mean, is that a, that's a quote that's in the Bible someplace? Well, yeah, that's in Matthew 16. It's only in Matthew. Uh, it's not in Mark, and Matthew is dependent on Mark, and so Matthew has added this. Is you have an original text of Mark. It's Mark chapter 8. And then in Matthew 16, he's rewriting Mark, and he adds this 
section where Peter is given this blessing and the keys to the kingdom. Now, Protestants would say that Jesus is not saying the foundation of the church is Peter on this rock. The rock is that Peter just confessed him as the Christ, meaning, Ah. blessed are you, Peter. You confess me as the Christ, and on this rock I'll build my church. Whereas Catholics say, now, wait a minute. He says, yes, I'm the Christ, and you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And some people, the Protestants make a point about two different words for rock, Petra and Petros, and one's a little rock and one's a big rock. That doesn't really hold up very well in Greek. Uh, I think that Matthew is looking more to Peter than to uh, James and uh, and maybe more to Paul even because I think Matthew is known as a Jewish gospel, but you got to say what kind of Judaism. So, But anyway, Luke, by the way, also has that passage, and he doesn't have anything about Peter being the foundation of the church. So you got to realize that's a Matthew thing and kind of deal with it that way. But either well, my, way, James has forgotten my other thought is they didn't have churches then. So No, no. I yeah, mean, Matthew says look, Matthew is so he says baptize in the Father, Son and Holy Ghost. There's Holy Spirit. Now you know that that formula is not from the first century. I mean that's we even have no. uh references to Matthew's gospel that don't have that formula, that triune formula. And we have a gospel of Matthew in Hebrew that does not have that, preserved by the rabbis in the Middle Ages. And it doesn't have a lot of these passages that we have in our Greek Matthew. And so I think Matthew became the church book. But did you know it's the only gospel to mention the church? (laughs) You know, I'll build my church. So it's the church gospel. They put it first. Everybody always likes it the best uh, in terms of people who just open the New Testament. There it is. Oh, this is it. You know, right away you got the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, if you study the Gospels more critically, you find that Mark wrote first, and then Matthew rewrote Mark and added some of what we call Q, the secret source of sayings of Jesus. And then Luke wrote the most complete Gospel, And he used Mark, and he used Q, and he used a lot of his own material. So several times today I've said to you, that's only in Luke. I could name, I don't know, for we don't have time, prodigal son, good Samaritan, rich man and Lazarus, Martha and Mary's story I've already mentioned, the two people who prayed in the temple. All these are only in Luke. So Luke really offers us, I think, the broadest sense of the Jesus tradition, And he includes the most authentic version of this Q document that we've lost. But because he had it, I think we can recover it. And that Q doctrine would be the earliest collection of the sayings of Jesus. But but didn't the writings of Paul come first? They did come first chronologically, but I would dare say that Q, the... The, it, Q means Kvala in German. It just means the source. So the Jesus saying document that we can extract from Luke 
um, I think it probably was written around the same time that Paul was writing his letters. And Paul might have even known some of it because he does refer to some of Jesus's teachings. Uh, it, it was, but it wasn't a gospel like a story of Jesus. It was, it was exactly what you would expect in that culture. Let's collect the the sayings of our rabbi Jesus because he's gone now. What did he teach? What was his core teaching? And we can actually recover that. Your listeners can go to the web. They can read the dedicate as I already mentioned. They can also go and type in the Gospel of Q. And they will find uh, earlychristianwritings.com has several versions of Q in English where you can read it in English and you're going to be amazed because it's going to be a Jesus that you uh, would imagine might be the way he was in his own time, just preaching on the hills of Galilee. Not really Christianity, but the way to follow God. Uh, It's really amazing. I just just saw the time. We have talked two hours away. Um, I want to thank you you so much for Yeah, I want to thank you so much for um, being patient with me and getting the show finally on the air. And I I so appreciate both of your books that I've read. And I'm so grateful that we had trouble so I could read both of them. Okay, well, I hope people will read them and benefit from them. I would agree with you, Paul and Jesus is probably the best to read first. And I would say all those who are more Christian, who've heard this broadcast, don't be afraid of Paul and Jesus, because if I got Paul right, you're going to love the book. And if you don't think Paul really heard from Jesus, then, you know, you'll have your own opinion. But it's not... uh, it's not a, a it's not a Paul bashing book. Uh, not at I'm trying all. to say what Paul said, and then like it or don't like it. That would be up to each individual to make their choice and decision. Thank you, Barbara. Well, and 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 the mysticism. Um, do read Paul's Ascent to Paradise because it's fabulous, and it it really does come after Paul and Jesus. So really cool both of them so i thank you so much for all of your work for all all that you've written and uh look forward to getting you back on again sometime soon okay barbara thank you for your time and you for yours thank you everybody for being here um this will go up on uh youtube and uh do check out tomorrow night another good show have a great evening everybody